Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading. This one is a mini milestone featuring our 49th and 50th CEOs sharing their take on taking the top job. If you've listened before, you'll know we feature bosses from business, charity, the arts, tech and beyond. They all discover they have challenges in common in the corner office and some of them have also appeared in my book, The Nine Types of Leader, which is available to order now. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockdowninternationalcom slash gb slash insight. And so to this episode. Sir Kieran Devane is Chief Executive of the British Council, the organisation which projects the UK's image on the world. Since 1934, it's aimed to forge trust and understanding with other countries through arts and educational programmes and is the number one specialist English language teacher. Sir Kieran began his career as an engineer and manager at ICI, but then changed direction in 2007 when he was appointed Chief Executive of Macmillan Cancer Support and then joined the British Council in 2015. Joining him is Kate Lee. She's Chief Executive of the Alzheimer's Society, the leading UK charity which supports more than 200,000 people with dementia every year. She took the helm in 2020 at short notice and with crises brewing as her predecessor departed early and the national lockdown loomed. Her creds include 14 years at the British Red Cross and five years as Chief Executive of the cancer charity Click Sergeant. It's a great conversation and a very personal episode. Both have quite emotional connections with the organisations they have run. I began by asking Kieran whether his job at the British Council has got harder given the world has closed in because of populism and the coronavirus pandemic in the last few years. This year has been very difficult for both those reasons. The first one, just the impact of the pandemic, the activities we do, the teaching of English, the invigilation of exams, the running events, you just couldn't do in in the same way. So we had to pivot in the world word everybody is using online. And the good news is we managed to do that. We had the tech. We now engage with millions of people, quite literally, uh, around the world, 5.2 million Um, attending webinars and so on. But it's not quite the same because we're supposed to be about building relationships, engendering trust, making connections. And at the end of the day, that's a human-to-human thing. So that bit's been difficult. And then there's the world itself. The bit I'm really worried about is the erosion of values, norms, behaviours, whatever you want. You know, that kind of confidence we all had a number of years ago that the world was getting better, that governance was getting better, that education was getting better. Now, much of that is still true, but we we see the uh, the blowback uh, as well. Uh, So for both those reasons, uh, 2020 has been uh, a really, really tough year, if I'm honest. And what about that next pivot then? I know you're handing on the the baton soon, but the role of British Council post-Brexit, such an important tool for the UK, it looks like you've scaled up some of the spending in developing markets. I don't know whether that's about shoring up relations with the European Union we're leaving behind. Well, maybe I've imagined that. I don't know, but I'm interested in your view going forward. Well, I think we have, but that's linked to the 0.7% uh, official development assistance, You know, the commitment the government's made to making sure we do invest in the developing world. However, we also need to make sure we balance that by the investment in Saudi Arabia, Russia, where I flew back from yesterday, our colleagues um, across Europe. Now, in the recent past, 
we have funded that ourselves out of the surplus we made out of teaching English and invigilating those exams. But of course, that surplus has gone away. And therefore, there's a big conversation going on as part of the overall spending review now about how to rebalance. And we're all looking forward to the uh, outcome of, uh, of those conversations. And the outcome of that financial conversation kind of leads the way for your predecessor to think about what the size and shape and role of British Council is going forward then. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, I think the principles won't change. You know, it will be about using our capability uh, with the English language uh, as an organisation, but also, you know, the other assets like, you know, the BBC and whoever, higher education, education more broadly, arts and culture. It'll be about using those, but it will have to be different. Um, you know, digital uh, will be a, a huge part of this. And if you'll forgive me one thing, you know, we teach English in you know, 47 countries around the world. Uh, but mostly in the capital cities. But with digital, you can reach every city in those countries. And in fact, you can reach every city on the planet. So digital has a huge part to play in the future, but it will never entirely replace human to human. Kate, let me come on to you. And I'll come on to your very interesting, colourful arrival at um, Alzheimer's Society shortly. But I'm very interested in where you are now with that biggest challenge. I mean, Kieran talked about digital. There's so much of the vital work that your organization does that can't be virtual. And it feels like you're in full-on campaign mode at the moment. How do we get so many people who are suffering from dementia the return of that human contact that they're missing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly our biggest challenge at the moment are getting care homes kind of up and open and visiting again. We've got about 350,000 families in the UK not able to visit their loved ones. And, you know, with no end in sight to that at the moment, I, we just can't go into into Christmas, into through the rest of the winter without getting that resolved. So, yeah, full on campaigning mode at the moment. I think one of the big things for me around digital with people with dementia, actually, is what's going to happen to people who get left on the wrong side of the digital divide. So I think similarly to Kieran, I've been proud of how the organisation's pivoted. We've actually used a lot of phone line support. We've launched something called companion calls where we've just got volunteers phoning up people with dementia and their carers for a chat which has all worked absolutely brilliantly. But, you know, a lot of people with dementia in the UK don't have adult children. That's the most common way we all find out how to uh, use digital tech in our older years. And so what about people who are not going to be able to order their shopping in future, do their doctor's appointment in future? So I think although we've made a huge step forward in digital over the last eight months, I worry that we've left a huge number of people behind. And you've talked about what you are one among many charities who will be thinking about how you cut your cloth going into next year. I think you've talked about possibly a £50 million shortfall, which is getting on for half of your revenue. So how bleak does it look and how do you, well, I suppose, cut your cloth? We kind of made a decision at Alzheimer's Society. As you say, I started at the beginning of March and... uh, So I only had three days in the office before we went into lockdown and really had to focus straight away. We made a decision really early on to cut hard and fast and to cut once. And so, you know, sadly, and it was really painful, we made a decision about losing about 340 staff. At that time, we furloughed about 400 staff over the last eight months. We've made a decision to cut down from 102 properties throughout the three nations right down to just having 15 in order to save costs. And that really hard-hitting, deep cut initially has served us really, really well. So our income and expenditure, even though we have taken a big financial hit, I think 
we are looking in reasonably good shape at the moment. We have been overwhelmed, actually, with how generous people have been. I think Alzheimer's Society Emergency Appeal has generated over £8 million, which is, I think, the second best emergency appeal in the country. People have really dug deep to support us. And that's all helped, too, because uh, that means we've had that good, you know, both income isn't quite as badly affected, probably going to be about £30 million. So thirty million loss, okay, as in as in down from the, the about one hundred and twelve yeah. um, revenue, still pretty stiff. Kieran, I suppose in terms of how you've cut your cloth, to some degree, all of that great outreach that you do, whether it's supporting scholarships for people to study in the UK, or fashion exhibitions and so on, as you say, because there's been so little human contact, those decisions have been taken for you. What about the learning side? Is that is that naturally gone to, to digital, or have there been difficult decisions you've had to make? The move to digital in terms of teaching of English, um, roughly two-thirds of the adults we were teaching uh, shifted on onto digital. And that's okay. That will be sustainable going forward. Uh, in terms of um, teaching English to younger kids, of course, one of the things parents are buying is somewhere to put the kids on a Saturday morning so they can go and do the shopping. So digital is not the sustainable answer to the education of, of younger children. The university side, it's been really interesting to see that the number of students intending to travel in October, if you measure that by how many were sitting exams to get their English qualification sorted, to get the visa sorted to travel, was actually greater than October in 2019. Now, some of that is catch-up, but the intent to travel and the intent to have the international education experience is there if they can. What our research is telling us is that young people around the world are saying, we'll do it if you can assure us that you're handling the pandemic properly. And if you're from particular countries, if you can assure us that it is safe for us to do it. And that's really about any overt racism that um, uh, may be in place. So they're wanting assurances from a health point of view, but also that this kind of tension in the world that we're seeing, that that isn't going to affect their education. Kieran, I'm curious because you know, coming towards the end of your time, what's been the um, what are the, the the metrics, the targets you follow, if you like? Because you you do there are some wonderful figures. I think you're you know by some measures you're reaching 800 million people a year, more than the BBC, the other great outreach program, if you like. But I guess it's not got to be quantitative. There's got to be. Um, it's difficult to know how you measure soft power success, isn't it? Or maybe you've cracked this by now. It is difficult. And, um, you know, I, I'm just signing off the annual report for uh, the year just gone. And we'll be saying that it's 970 million people we reached in one way or another last year. So not far short of the billion. But that's kind of the, as you say, that that's the quantity. What about the quality? What we've been able to do is show that people who engage with the UK through the arts, through education, through broadcast through science, who have, let's call it a cultural experience or engagement with the UK, are 50% more likely to trust the UK, and that's trust the government, trust the people, trust the institutions, and their propensity to trade, their propensity to visit, their propensity to send their children to university here is proportionately higher as well. So, So for me, the ultimate metric is trust. Um, you know, do people trust the, the people in the institutions and the government of the UK? And what we've been able to show is that where people engage generally, that goes up. And when they engage through the British Council, it goes up that bit more. And what are your targets? What do you need to do, Kate? I mean, trust, trust obviously is a big thing. People don't donate unless they trust an organisation like yours. 
Yeah, and trust is something that we've been working on very hard this year. And I think for me, the openness and honesty that charities need to have that really authentic presentation that we are trustworthy, we are effective, we are efficient, you know, that starts in-house. That starts with staff feeling like they can be honest and open about things that haven't gone well, areas of business that have failed in the delivery against pilots that we hoped would work in certain ways and have a really honest and robust conversation inside the organization about that to really build that confidence about then having that honesty externally. And that's very much where we're taking the organization in terms of our cultural development at the moment. And I think I'm, you know, I always say I'm a chronic oversharer. Well, I've seen you on social media. <laughs> I know, I'm a, I, I, I'm a chronic oversharer. So uh, I think that trying to get that real sense of honesty and openness coming out of the organization. I think for us in the terms of targets, we've got some really interesting debates going on at the moment. I really think that there's space for Alzheimer's society to really aspire to reach everybody diagnosed with dementia in the UK. And as I say, at the moment, that's 850,000, but will rise to over a million within the next five years. And I would love to see us really aspire to being there to help people on the day of their diagnosis, kind of come to terms with that diagnosis, plan for the future, avoid really terrible crises that end up being devastating in families when people get dementia and they maybe, say, have a fall or a period in hospital. And then just really thinking about the impact of social isolation. But it's interesting. So thinking about how do we get to full reach? Where do we start? And the debate we were having just yesterday in the organisation was we could reach 500,000 people by just having some really clever, crafty adverts on Facebook, but they are likely to be people who already are at the better end in the health inequality debate. So do we go for 500,000 relatively easy to reach people or do we go for 100,000 people that have are at the worst end of the health inequality debate that find it hard to access services from organisations like Alzheimer's Society. You know, and that might be those in BAME communities, wrong side of the digital divide. So it's, it's quite an interesting debate, even thinking about those big goals, just really thinking about how we get there now is much more nuanced and what do we deliver face-to-face, what do we deliver digitally? So quite significant debates. And one thing you've talked about, I mean, it's interesting that I think there are a number of charities uh, who try to do the full service to be the sort of universal service provider and so on. I think you've talked quite eloquently about being a partnership organisation, you know, in this time where money is tight. I think you're saying charity leaders need to be a little bit more almost humble and and seeing how do we do things with other organisations. We don't want to duplicate the services we offer and the support. Yeah, I mean, I I think I probably have kind of that sense of collaboration in every fibre of my body. And that does play out very much about how I see that organisations should operate, not just charities, actually cross sector and operate at their best. So for me, it's a really difficult decision, you know, and it's a tricky job. I'm sure Kieran would agree as one of the trickiest jobs of as chief exec of any charity is balancing up the kind of fundraisers wanting it to be all about our brand and in our name because that's what makes the donors donate with actually really thinking about but just what gets best impact and if what gets best impact for people with dementia is Alzheimer's society working to build social capital locally by strengthening local charities actually you know doing stuff that's not in our name but actually uses our resource and our expertise to get projects going 
I think that's what we should be doing. But it's a it's a tension in the organisation. Yeah, can I can I jump in there, um, please, Kieran? Because because I would say you've had your time. You were leading Macmillan for many years, so I'm really interested in your your perspective now. Yeah, I com- completely agree with that because one of my formative moments as chief executive Macmillan was um, one of my colleagues drew a flip chart and put a little green pea in the bottom corner and a kind of a blue satsuma and then this big lurking sort of basketball thing over over the edge and made the point was, look, if the idea is to be an, a slightly bigger green pea, that's great. But the real win in this is to influence the kind of the volume of people who are also supporting people with cancer and the people who are supporting health more broadly because that impacts people with cancer too. And it led us to get to a position where we we said to ourselves, look, we will out-collaborate everyone else. We will be, be the most collaborative, the most helpful, the mo- most participative charity that we can possibly be because our collective success will have a much greater in- impact. You know, if Macmillan grew to 200 million, well, there's 7 billion spent on cancer and there's another 130 billion spent on health. Let's influence that too. And Kieran, did you feel that when you, so you were at Macmillan, you know, very successfully, I think for seven years, I'm interested in how it was when you came over to British Council, because British Council is is unique in a way that it's that government supported, but it's also a commercial business, the biggest English language teacher in the world. But it's a very diplomatic role. Did you feel that you had to moderate your behaviour a bit as a leader and go from from that campaigning type to a diplomat? Yes, is the short answer. Um, I think that you operate in a different club where in the charity world, which is inherently collaborative, it's not sort of as competitive as being a high street retailer, say. Um, But there's another level again when you are balancing the different interests of stakeholders and they all have to be balanced. You know, back in the Macmillan days, you know, we would do our best, but we always realised that, you know, we would have to sub-optimise one day and somebody else might, might the next. But when you're balancing the needs of, you know, the different government departments, the devolved administrations, the education sector, the interests of your partners in whichever country you have, happen to be talking to, it, it is a, a kind of, a, let's call it a quasi-diplomatic uh, role. Because at the end of the day, the purpose of the British Council is exactly that. You know, it, it, it's back to the origins. You know, we were set up and got our royal charter in 1940. And the idea was to to increase this understanding of people in, in the UK in a very, very difficult time for the world. So the purpose is inherently kind of diplomatic and operating in the Whitehall system and the political system, um, not only in our own country, but in the 115 countries that we operate in. Um, it's a, a core competence that um, our staff need to develop. Are you worried if uh, if the British Council loses out in the uh, spending review? I mean, you, I think, got 184 million or thereabouts from them recently. I mean, does that really impact how you can operate and how we go about winning friends and influencing people if uh, if you're asked to get by on less? Yeah, it does. Because while you know we're 1.3 billion turnover, so you know north of a billion is kind of commercial income. You know, we're, we'd be a FTSE 250 firm probably if we if we were publicly listed. But the magic money, the flexible money, the money that does those things which are completely amazing is the grant from from the government. It pays for the ability to have highly capable people in the right places, being able to bring the right expertise and knowledge from the UK to bear um, in support of partners in in country. So I think that is, is essential. 
you know, and the biggest strategic issue, I think, for us is that balance between what proportion of that grant is in the aid budget and what proportion is in some of the countries which are our bigger economic partners or geopolitically more, more significant. And I, I think that that is the big question for us, um, which hopefully will be coming out of the spending review. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown, on leading in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has taught me as a leader that what you can't do is think that the past is going to be the arbiter of the future. The pace at which things have changed with this pandemic in terms of the business environment, in terms of the challenges faced by our associates, but also by our clients, and all of the technology challenges within our organisations has meant that we've had to move so fast in so many areas that I don't think historically would have had to. So if we look to the future, that pace of change from leaders, I think is really important. And also that we're taking the good things that we have created in our organisations and actually make sure that they're sustainable and they're embedded so that we don't lose them as focus drifts away to other areas because there will be new challenges. Kate, I want to turn to your arrival, um, which is a podcast in its own its own right, possibly. But if I just do a praise and correct me if I got any of any of this wrong, you were recruited to join after a successful period running Click Sergeant, the uh, youth cancer charity. That's right. You arrived a bit a little bit early. There were allegations of bullying and spending on NDAs and so on in the organisation and worries about trust. There's been no evidence of wrongdoing found by the charity commission. But still, you were in a brand new place a few weeks before the pandemic struck and you had quite an intray before the pandemic struck. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it was like a bit of, you know, people talk about a perfect storm, actually. And I, and I think I shall now reserve that phrase in my life for, for certainly that period. I was at Kick Sergeant and I'd obviously got the, found out that I'd got the Alzheimer's Society role for Christmas, had really kind of a thought over Christmas. I mean, uh, the really classic story that I, I keep saying is that I'd um, planned a session with my coach on the 14th of March to talk through how I wanted to enter Alzheimer's Society, you know, just thinking about what I wanted to leave behind as a chief exec in my previous role, what I wanted to build on, you know, how I would deal with the kind of challenges that I saw in front of me. And so that, as I say, that was going to be in mid-March. And then I started on the 1st of March. And by the time we had that session, I think I just probably cried the entire way through it. So uh, it was um, it was challenging. Stephen Hill, the chairman of Alzheimer's Society, phoned the chairman of Click Sergeant and asked if I would be able to start a month early at the end of February. I kind of left Click Sergeant on the Friday and started at Alzheimer's Society on the Monday. And because of lockdown, I never went back. I remember Stephen. He's a very persuasive chap. Very, very persuasive. He's fab. But, um, you know, I never went back to Click Sergeant. And I think that in itself has been something that I haven't really had time to reflect on. But actually, that was, I absolutely adored that job, the most incredible organization and the most fabulous time there as chief exec and a wonderful team. And I think it was not only starting at Alzheimer's Society, which because of the accusations in The Guardian, because of we went straight into a charity commission investigation, was quite overwhelming. And as I say, then within two weeks, we went into lockdown. I think one of the big issues for me was also that I didn't have time to really properly leave Click Sergeant. I never 
said goodbye. I, you know, never said goodbye to the board. Uh, not that I wanted one of those awful stand and stare sessions, but um, I didn't really come to terms with leaving Click Sergeant. And I found myself way into kind of May and even early June, keep thinking, oh, I've never finished so-and-so and thinking, oh, I don't even do that job now. I think that was a difficult period, a difficult period emotionally, actually, a difficult period mentally, not just because of the challenges of the new role, but because of that part kind of maybe even grieving for the old role over that time. Yeah, it's a good word. Good. I, it sounded just like grief. And I'm curious, I think you you weren't necessarily looking to leave Click Sergeant. You know, no one ever is, and, and then the right opportunity comes along. What was the draw of, of Alzheimer's Society? And I, I couldn't help noticing that you've written very movingly about, about your mum's condition recently. Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't looking to leave Click Sergeant at all. I'd been there about four and a half years and, and generally uh, kind of I feel five years is a good time to be chief exec of an organisation. Um, certainly seeing kind of one full strategy round through and, and, you know, the preparation of the next one. I certainly had time more to do there and a lot more to do. Uh, I saw in the September that Jeremy had was leaving Alzheimer's Society and uh, it was interesting. It was on a team away day and my whole team travelled back into London together on the train and apparently they were very quiet and then one of them said I think Kate's gonna leave and everybody apparently nodded I wasn't there but they confessed this to me when I told them that I'd got the job yeah my mum was diagnosed with dementia 16 years ago so it's been a huge huge part of our lives and our family for a long time and I just suppose I felt this is you know I'm coming up soon on 30 years in the sector and this is my 12th year as a chief exec. And I suppose there was just something about thinking about, I'll never be a founder. I just, I don't have the risk appetite to be a founder. I deeply admire them, but I, I just, it wouldn't be for me. But I did think actually, maybe it's time to use everything I've learned to really shape a cause that I feel deeply, deeply passionately about improving the situation. So kind of knew it would be a model. I knew it would be weird having both that very personal connection as well as professional connection. I think uh, I think there's definitely a book in the last two or three weeks for me where I have used my mum's personal story, uh, my own personal story with our and my family's story about my mum's dementia in order to lobby the government to improve the situation on care home visiting because I can't visit my mum. I've been for a window visit. It was horrific. It's quite interesting blurring those boundaries between personal and professional. And uh, I think uh, in the words of the great Renee Brown, uh, I think I have a vulnerability hangover this week where I just feel maybe I've just kind of exposed enough of myself for the week. Well, who who knows? But I, I guess you you don't do it unless it's well thought through and, and um, you know, absolutely beneficial to the cause. Kieran, I'm interested in your style of leadership. I've talked a little bit about the the diplomacy, but I mean, I I don't want to draw too many um, lines together, but the idea of being a leader with soft power, I think is quite interesting. Actually getting people to follow you because they want to, I think is, is, seems to be quite an important skill to have. Do you agree? I I do. And a lot of that is about Telling that story and those stories and the vision and, of course, having the evidence to back it up, as um, one of my colleagues used to say, have a, have a big number and a good story. Being a chief exec is actually a few jobs. Uh, one of them is running the organization. The other is 
understanding the environment and influencing the environment and another might be reading the future. And you have to do a, a bit of each of those. But what I've tried to do internally is always say that my job is to make it easy for everyone else to do their job. I'm not trying to be a, a better marketeer or a better communicator or a, a better expert in higher education than anyone else. But it really is, how do I make it easy for you to be as brilliant as you can be? And if you if you start with that point, then you can automatically help the organization evolve and, and change. I, I remember when I started at the British Council saying, we've got brilliant people doing brilliant things, but our processes are really, really difficult. And we're not very good at communicating what we do or why we do it. And um, so we, by fixing the processes, by making it easier, by making it easy to explain to people why what we do is important, then all those brilliant people around the planet can do what they're paid to do and do what they're inspired to do. I really agree with that, Kieran. I once heard Gail Rebuck, who was the former chief exec of Random House Publishing, saying that our role as chief exec is to polish light bulbs, but not to shine ourselves. And that really deeply impacted me in thinking about my own style more as a multiplier as chief exec. How do I get the people that are out there delivering services to people with dementia, really loving the job, performing at their best? And I think that is the challenge. Yeah, I agree. Because that point about keeping in touch with people, Kieran, I mean, it's a whacking number of people in your organisation, 12,000, I think, at the, uh, you know, that's like a small football crowd. So curious how you do keep in touch with the ball. You try really hard and um, we do all the um, the things you'd expect us to do. We uh, we have very big town hall conference calls or video calls these days and we might get 5,000 people. We would do three, you know, one for each time zone. Yeah, you know, we might get five thousand in, in a cycle. You do that. You send you send the communications, but you also have to visit because I think you have to make stories, generate stories. You have to give people times that they can reflect on when they you know met the the chief exec and they were talking about something difficult and the values of the organisation came through. Because I'm a big believer that one of the things we have to do as leaders, and uh, you know, I know that Kate does this. If you you set a, a tone with the values and you debate values so that the right thing happens when you're not there, uh, it shouldn't rely on your presence. It shouldn't rely on, you know, how good was the, the blog you did last week. But if you talk about values and set expectations and crucially challenge bad values and do something about them, then good things will happen when you're not around. And Kieran, you talked about, you know, it's it's not about you being a better marketer or, or whatever. It's about helping all those people around you to do better. But, but you haven't given up on learning, have you? I mean, there's, al- there's always more to pick up. No, absolutely. And you have to maintain that passion and that hunger, because if you are about understanding the environment and anticipating the future, then you've got to be reading yourself into that. So one of the privileges, I think, of, of my role is that when... I go somewhere, I'm talking to the most amazing people who are at the top of their game globally. I I spent um, three days this week in uh, Moscow talking to the Foundation for Basic Research, talking to the rector of um, Moscow State University, talking to uh, the staff at a place called Garage, which is a big gallery. And these are people who are absolutely fantastic at what they do. And you, you just listen and just by osmosis, you're taking stuff in from them because the world is very different. I mean, the who who would have thought that all our organisations would be largely working from home? That we would be coping with the the way of working that we're 
we're doing. Um, and if you hadn't been anticipating things and listening to people and realizing that digital was, of course, coming, and if we hadn't invested in that, then you know, for us as a global organization, we would have fractured because nobody could talk to anyone. And um, as it happens, the famous one is Jordan, where um, they switched online in six hours because you know they were able to do it. Kate, would you talk a little about how you've talked a bit about putting your mum into the story? But I'm interested, aside from that, you're a big you're a big communicator through social media and others. Has that always been part of your way of doing things? Or is that, well, I think you said how, how many years in the sector? 25 or 30? So you, you didn't have that tool back then. So how do you approach it now? Yeah, I do believe in the power of communication. I believe in kind of real accessibility as a leader. And I, and I think there's lots of divided views about whether being more open and directly accessible as a chief exec is a good thing or not. I believe it is. And uh, I think it's really important with declining trust in charities. Uh, One way of building trust is to be seen to be very publicly accountable and social media does give me an opportunity to be able to do that. And to also thank my staff publicly, you know, thank those amazing people with dementia that support the organisation as storytellers, volunteers. You know, I just think it, it gives a real sense of family, which is very much what I want. I do do a lot of communication. I have a Monday morning kind of good morning Alzheimer's Society session, like on the sofa with Kate, which we do 30 minutes every Monday morning. And we have the most random topics or just something completely different every week. So this week was all about Diwali and we had speakers on and we did some celebration stuff. And I just think it's about engaging the organisation. That sounds like it's all part of that culture change that you've got to bring in. Yeah, really opening that up, reducing hierarchy within the organisation. You know, the best idea could come from absolutely anywhere in the organisation and therefore the channels for that idea to come through. You know, the next idea that may well revolutionise the world for people with dementia could be brewing in, you know, an office in Hull. So have I got those really open channels of communication by which that idea comes to the fore? So, yeah, it is incredibly important to me. and I, But then it's also part of my leadership style and probably part of my personal brand. I I call myself chief cheerleader. I wrote to the staff on my very first day as chief exec and said, you know, I am very feisty. I'll tell you if I hate it. Even if I don't tell you, you'll know. You'll read it on my face. But I am also your chief cheerleader and I will always be there for you. And I think that is really important and it's a value I try to live by. Kieran, what was the uh, the first time you led or the first organization you led? It was Macmillan, and it was a bit of a shock, really, because I don't think I'd ever led a group of people more than 20 before that. So you arrive in and you say, oh, gosh, I, I you know, I have to work out what this job is, and then I have to work out how to do it. And it is daunting, and you do have to fall back on other experiences you had where you, know, you were leading a project. I remember at my interview, they saying, well, how are you going to manage 800 people? said, well, you know, I'll try and manage the 20 I work closest with really well and hope that they do the same thing and go from there and learn from there. But you you do, when you step into that role, you don't really know what it's like to be a CEO until you are one. That that kind of thing, that the cliche that people talk about, you know, it being lonely at the top, you, you, are, you are aware that there, there is nowhere else. And, and that if you do make the wrong decision, it will have a huge number of consequences for your beneficiaries, never mind your staff as well. 
Um, and it is something you, you do have to come to terms with. And I remember at the time talking to um, chief exec of one of the big multinationals, um, Zeneca, uh, as was, and uh, saying, you know, what's, what's your one tip? You know, his answer was stamina, being able to cope with it. And what he meant was, remember what you're there, because everybody else will be very easily diverted into better fundraising, different service delivery, whatever. But you're the one who has to hold it up to the mission, you know, working with your board and your trustees. But that's on you. It's not on anyone else. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's, it's great advice. And and look, I think you've talked about this quite a bit. This, I think Macmillan was very much a calling for you because it was a charity that looked after your wife so well. And I, I'm just curious, I suppose there's such an aspect of leadership that involves strength. And I know that going through, well, Kate's already alluded to grief, that something about standing up in front of people after something so terrible happens that actually you do feel quite filled with helplessness. But But I guess you have to still be the boss. So that must, I can only imagine that must have been quite tough. Yeah, I think um, you draw from it might be the way to, to say, um, because the, the thing that I was inspired by, as many, many other people in the, in the voluntary sector are, is making it easier for the next person in the queue. You know, we had a great experience. We're well looked after you know, by Macmillan, by the NHS, by the hospice, you know, let's make sure that that and better is there for the next person in the queue. And that kind of sense of purpose, I think, which we're very privileged in, whether it's British Council or Macmillan as well as, or, you know, Click Sergeant or, or Alzheimer's, that sense of mission is a, a huge strength and attribute, which I, um, I don't know if Kate would agree, as individuals we draw on, but certainly as organisations we also draw on. Absolutely. I think that's true. And I I think it's that personal experience and, and I I've always been someone who's also wanted to try and stay quite close to the people we seek to serve. So spend time with people who use our services, you know, and and make time for that. So that I'm also try to remind myself constantly about the reality on the ground for those people. I think sometimes it's quite easy as chief exec, particularly I'm finding a very big organization to find yourself very distant from that really quickly. And um, that importance of storytelling, I loved Kieran's point about you have to go out and find stories. I found that quite hard over lockdown because there's not an opportunity to get out and find stories, you know, experience it, feel it for yourself. Uh, And I do think that's important in being a really authentic leader of a charity. I think one of the other things is maybe it's um, a distinction between British Council and Macmillan for me, but it's remembering that sometimes people don't agree with you and they don't buy into your way of, way of things. And, um, and sometimes it's quite serious. The, um, you know, we have a, a young member of staff called Aris Amiri who's been sentenced to 10 years in jail in Tehran just for doing her job. You know, she was working with the Ministry of Culture and Artists in Tehran and bringing them to the um, Edinburgh Festival. Um, but when she went home on, um, on on leave, she was arrested. Now, for me, I just don't get that. You know, my brain does not compute in any way that that is a legitimate thing to do or a good thing to do or in anybody's interest, including um, Tehran's interest, to do as well. And I think it's one of the things when you are the chief exec, it's back to this thing, you kind of feel the weight of things. As I walk out the door next month, one of the things which I have not succeeded at, you know, in over two years is getting Aris out of jail. And love to think I've done everything I can, but you know, that feeling will all be the, always be there. And what do you do next, Kieran? Um, you, you need to ask me that fairly, fairly shortly, maybe in another month, another month or two. There, I've, I've got two passions uh, at the moment. One is healthcare, 
you know, for all the reasons that uh, you can imagine. So one option would be to do a bit more uh, in that field. And the other one is this thing around worrying about the erosion of values and norms in, in the in the world. What can somebody do to make sure that the bridges continue to be built despite pandemics, despite international tensions, and be despite internal tensions in particular countries. So um, with a little bit of luck, I'll be doing something in, in that space before too long. So watch this space. Kate, just to go back a little um, to, to your beginnings, I mean, Kieran was, you know, there's very varied and changed direction, ICI, managing consulting into Macmillan and, and British Council. And, and your, you know, the sort of the charitable remit runs through your CV like, like through a stick of rock. Those 16 years at the start with British Red Cross. I wonder at what point did you think, yeah, I can run one of these um, organisations? Or, or do you never think that until you're stood in front of the people as Kieran described? I don't know. I've thought it yet. I'm hoping that day will come one day where I just think, do you know what? I, I can run this. Well, I think you're getting away with it today. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. So for me, yeah, I I was at Red Cross, obviously had uh, uh, Kieran, I think your predecessor, Sir Nicholas Young. Yes, indeed. He's obviously my boss at Red Cross and a, a brilliant, wonderful supporter and mentor and, and advocate for me throughout my time there. And I think Kieran will like this if you didn't know already. I left Red Cross to do my Claw Social Leadership Fellowship full time. Ah, very good. So uh, I was the very first year of Claw Social Leaders Fellow in 2010. So I didn't actually just lead to think I want to go into a chief exec's role. That was something that my time on Claw really helped me get my head around that I wanted to become a generalist I was working in strategy, both UK and international strategy at Red Cross before I left. So kind of decided that I wanted to give being a chief exec a shot uh, at the end of my core time and went across to Might and Hospice, which was interesting going from such a massive, great big kind of international charity to a, a very, you know, heart of the community charity in the local hospice movement. Uh, and it was a great organisation to cut my teeth on as a first chief exec. And I felt I was in, you know, I felt it was a job I could probably do because I was coming from that kind of big organisational experience. And then I think, again, after five years, I just, I, I really, really missed not being in London. I think, sadly, the charity sector is incredibly London-centric still, and I hope that will start to change now. But wanted to get back into the kind of part of what was going on so moved back to click sergeant uh, at the time which was just the, as i say the best move and, and absolutely loved that and all of these organizations kate there is much much heartwarming work going on there are you know tireless volunteers and so on but these are also tough areas to work in so i'm interested in how you switch it off and leave it on the side and then go home to your family or can you not do that well, it's really funny because when I got my um, job at Click Sergeant, I heard one of my young children telling her friend that, and I was obviously leaving the hospice, and she said, oh, my mum's got a new job. She's going to work with dying children because dying old people hasn't been enough for her. <laughs> and I thought that's probably quite a shocking indictment on how my children view my career is that it's just going from one dire uh you know area to another i have not necessarily through choice but i have always you know or through planning but i have worked in a whole series of really high highly emotive kind of complex very 
difficult areas you know there are more difficult ones I mean actually I do probably find my time at Red Cross I did a lot of work in the development of refugee services I probably found that some of the hardest work emotionally actually weirdly even than than working in end-of-life care but now I think also uh, each condition as a really strange kind of brings its own baggage so I think what I'm finding very hard is just how little resource little interest there is and and whether there's an underpinning ageism in dementia that that is quite shocking compared to for example my last five years in cancer so yeah I I mean I think at the moment I'm probably had a few days where I felt compassion fatigue in a way that I never have in my whole career because these stories that we're hearing around people not being able to get into UK care homes is some really really heartbreaking stories and being very accessible as a chief exec means people kind of tweet me about them directly or email me directly about their very difficult stories as well which is the downside of being so visible but then there's there's so much upside as you say yeah yeah it is actually can i ask you both about um advice you pass on or people that you mentor i mean kieran i guess people come to you and say uh how do i get where you are be yourself um i i think don't try and be somebody else and make sure that you seize those opportunities even though they don't look um, entirely sensible and um, one of the people i was um talking to a lot about leadership was martin lewis if you remember martin the um newscaster who when he retired re-interviewed many of the great world leaders he'd interviewed as a journalist and um, one of the stories was, I, I want to say it was um, President Chirac who, who said it when he was asked, well, how did you get where you got to? And uh, his answer was, I jumped on the galloping horse of opportunity um, and said, well, what on earth do you mean by that? And said, well, imagine you're, you're sitting in the middle of nowhere and you're wondering what to do with yourself. And, you know, I can look after my farm and I can buy an extra cow or a pig or whatever. And this horse comes do you jump on the horse or don't you? Because if you jump on the horse, it might take you something marvelous. Or you might just fall off and you can come back to your farm. But that idea of being open to opportunities, I'm not a big believer in career plans, to be honest. I think being, watching, listening, talking, networking in the cliche, just not from a kind of a self-serving point of view, but just being somewhere interesting. So you do that learning that you asked about previously, but also you are you're understanding things in a different way. And one day... You know, some horse will come galloping and you may as well jump on it because it could take you somewhere fun. And I notice while we're talking, Kieran, I must apologise. I've gone on a lot about Kate's um, social media prowess, but you're tweeting along as we're in conversation here. So, well, um, you know, uh, very well done, you know. Um, <laughs> Kate, does this galloping horse, is that the sort of advice you pass on? You you should use this, the galloping horse. It's pretty good. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. I was just thinking, like, would I get would I get on a galloping horse? That's a really interesting thing. I think uh, I'm, I'm also not particularly up for career planning. I'm quite opportunistic in the in the moment in the terms of deciding what to do next I think the advice that I give mentors I mentor a lot of women I mentor a lot of kind of younger women at an earlier stage in their career I obviously I don't know if it's obvious but I I do tend to spend quite a bit of time with women who are wanting to explore about being working mums and getting that work-life balance right I think the advice that I often give that seems to kind of land well and and I appreciate I do say this quite a lot but I think there are days when all you can do is ask yourself, am I a good person and am I trying my best? And providing the answer to those two questions is yes, you can't expect anything more of yourself. And if there's someone that could do it better, fine. But right now, what they've got is you and you have good intent 
and you all couldn't do anything more. You can, you know, with the advice you've got, the information you've got, the energy you've got, this is the best you've got. And actually to give yourself a break, because I think one of the things I see with a lot of young leaders, not just young women, but a lot of young leaders is just setting the expectations of themselves ridiculously high, particularly in this sector, and always then having a sense that they're not living up to that. And I think that drives a lot of the kind of fear of failure, you know, the worry that they could be doing more for people with dementia, you know, is this enough? Am I enough? And I feel quite strongly about that ability for people to just take a step back and say, am I a good person? And am I trying my best? And what more than right now have I got to give? And just to let yourself sit with that. Great. I've asked all I need to ask. Is there anything either of you want to add? Let me take the opportunity. I, I think it is a follow-on, a corollary to what Kate has just said, which is, you know, to remind you know, the next generation, that they are brilliant. They are doing amazing things. They will do it in a very different way to Kate and myself. And um, so, you know, plan their own furrow is what's important because if they try and be us, then they'll be out of date. So, let you know, just be yourself. You will do it in a different way. You will, you know, maybe, you know, learn something from the likes of ourselves, but, um, but equally doing it differently is okay too. Um, there isn't there isn't a model, you know. Remember the days of the heroic chief executive who sort of you know single handedly leads from the front. Well, that was you know in my mind that was never a good idea. So don't fall for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. The worst piece of advice I was ever given was to tell you know when I'm struggling, imagine you know what someone I really admire would do in this situation. And what I've realised over the years is that just makes you feel like you don't measure up, and that's not true. Just say you know what does the best version of you do in this situation. And, and I think it takes you to exactly the same place, Kieran, you know, just, you know, be yourself, work it out. You are enough. I think we've got some amazing leaders coming up in the sector. I mean, absolute, you know, blow you away, people. So I'm excited for the future of the sector, actually. Kate, Lee, Sir Kieran Devane, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. Very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternationalcom gb insight. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes. If you're interested in the arts, check out my conversation with Stuart Murphy from English National Opera, Craig Hassel from the Royal Albert Hall, or the Northern Ballet's Mark Skipper, wherever you get your podcasts, or please take a look at leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon. Music